At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. We tend to not follow people who, who say things that aggravate us or not agree with our worldview. So we create that bubble and we create that bubble in the real world too. Why did I become an executive coach? I saw lots of great people fail to get ahead at work, while their much less talented peers blew right past them. That made me furious, but also curious. What were great people getting wrong? It came down to helping them re-examine what drove success and then helping them make critical shifts one hard truth at a time. Feel like you're doing everything you were told but you're not moving ahead at work nor having the impact you seek? Then welcome to 97% Effective with Michael Winderoth, where we skip feel-good, happy talk and engage experts in pointed conversations about what it really takes to move the needle at work and your career. So if you feel stalled or frustrated or seek that extra edge as you move to the next level, then look no further. This is the Hard Truths Playbook you never got. Hi, I'm Michael Wenderoth, and you're listening to 97% Effective. In this episode, I carry on my conversation with Jacob Kochinski, trust and safety expert in Silicon Valley. An engineer, Jacob has spent the last decade leading trust and safety initiatives at Google, ByteDance, that's the owners of TikTok, and Meta, after more than a decade at Procter & Gamble. Last week, we traced Jacob's career arc from Poland to Silicon Valley, then discuss the role of trust and safety departments and the triangle system that they use to deter and root out bad actors that seek to inflict harm upon social media communities. In this continuation episode, Jacob and I discuss what we can apply from those learnings to propel our careers, teams, and organizations. Starting with a provocative question, what can good people learn from bad actors. Enjoy. Totally out of curiosity, because it's something I do with my clients, because we can become very judgmental about bad actors. And I'll ask you, is there anything that good actors, if we're trying to do no harm, trying to foster better environments, might learn from what the the bad guys are doing (laughs) that could then be, could be harnessed in a positive way to the end goal we're seeking? I like your take here because there's always there's there's always a learning anywhere, right? Like, I think the perseverance comes to mind, really. I remember this in Google, we had this one bad actor that was continuously creating fake Gmail accounts and anything we put in front of them as as a way to block a particular vector of automating the account creation. He, a couple of weeks later, figured out another way, bought another set of IP proxies that he was using to circumvent the things that, that, that we blocked. And this was like a cat and mouse game that, like, at a certain point, we were laughing. We're like, we want to meet this person. We should hire them. <laughs> <laughs> they're really good at what they're doing. And we, you know, this was more like, when, is it, when, when will he finally stop? He or she, we didn't really know. 
And yeah, at a certain point, the accounts became so expensive because of so much effort that was put from, from a Google side that they decided to go and do something different. But it was like two years in the making. So picking up on that perseverance of, of finding the way in the space, you, do, you are optimistic that we will figure out ways, whether through technology or other, on how we'll manage what a lot of people feel like is spiraling out of control. Yes. And there's multiple biases why we think it's spiraling out of control, mm. right? Like if we create an information bubble around us where, where everything is, is what we're hearing is, is negative or out of control, then, then that's how we're going to feel. If that's all we see or if this is the majority of what we see. I don't think it's spiraling out of control. Every, every data point that I, that I look that, that kind of spans across and takes a, a much more broader and objective view of, of what's happening, it's really not that bad. I had these debates with with some prominent businessmen as well, recently with one in, in, in Poland, where you know they take a very simplistic view saying, You you meta when when I was working in Meta, you meta, you have all the best people, all the AI experts in the world. Why won't you solve this problem? And the fact that you're not solving this problem means that you're you're profiting from it, from, from the fact that there's a status quo and there's there's a lot of badness out there. If you look at the data points and, and internally look at, at like how much badness, and you can sample it, like you can take a statistically relevant sample of user uploads and say how much you're catching versus how much kind of slipped through. And most of the platforms are trying to keep within the particular product area, the badness well below 1%. In certain types of badness, you're trying to limit it down to as close to zero as possible. I'm talking like, you know, CSAM, which is child safety abuse uh, media. But most of the time, it's, it's relatively well kept under those lids. They're, they're popping, like they're, you, you can see a pop in spam, you can see a pop in, in violent extremism or, or disturbing uh, uh, pictures when a war starts somewhere. But then quickly, like teams are reallocated and, and then they figure out what, like what it happened and then they implement measures to, to, to keep it down. It's never going to be perfect. That's, that's where I was heading with this. People think you can throw all the people on it, you can throw all the AI engineers and they will solve these problems. Because of the complexities and the cat and mouse nature of, of this, you will always see flare-ups of, of different kinds of abuse happening. And that's just the nature of it. And I know it's hard to accept. It feels like a failure uh, for many of, of these platforms, but I mean... We also, again, comparison to the real world, like we still have homicides. We, we still have uh, uh, people killing each other, harming each other, doing other illegal things, even though we, we have mechanisms and, and structures and systems in place to stop that. And I see the same is unfortunate in, in the online world. And I imagine if you're, if you're doing this all the time and you're looking at bad stuff, that's also got a way on you as an individual. And it gets me thinking too, if you're in a toxic environment, you know, to get out of there periodically? Are, are there certain things you do on your team to keep people sane so you're not constantly staring at that information and it becomes your bubble? Curious if there's things yeah. that we can learn there about our own mental health. I think so too. And there's good practices, really good practices that have been developed over the years as people have been dealing with a lot of that hard, hard impact type of abuse, child safety area, violent extremism with, you know, some some very gnarly or dangerous acts as well. If I think about another one where people, you know, lose their limbs or, or die and performing certain stunts that, that are quite shareable and people want to share them. There's a lot of that in TikTok, especially uh, with, which we were dealing with. 
Best practices, the big ones that come to mind, the association that this is work, I'm doing this because I'm, I'm helping removing this so other people don't see it and they are not traumatized by it. So knowing that you're doing something correct and doing something that, that's relevant for the society as, as at large. Physical separation, that's why COVID was a, a really threw a wrench in, in this, but for, for the longest ever, we've made sure that teams that are dealing with the most gnarly type of abuse or, or um, egregious type of abuse is, is done in work. You don't bring it home and you're not reviewing this in, in your bedroom yeah. because then it, you create an association that, that you know, it, it's not pleasant uh, for you over, over long term. Teams develop different mechanisms of coping with it. I always was advocating for once a week we should talk to a specialist as, as a group and then uh, there should be individual sessions to spot that. And I've rotated people in and out as well. Like I've had people who... They know why they're doing this. They're very mission-driven. They know this is not the only lens that they should look at through at humanity and they can deal with it very effectively. But I also had people that after a couple of weeks, they said, like, I just can't do it. Like, it's, it's too much for me. And we rotated them out and, and gave them um, a, a, an issue vertical. There's also multiple ways you can fine-tune the tools that they're using to look at this content. It has to be black and white. We have strong evidence that color is, is adding to, to, to the traumatic response. We typically, when you're reviewing videos, you don't want to hear the audio track. We're keeping it muted because that adds to the traumatic response. More senses are getting involved. And you can also automate that you don't have to watch a 30-minute video of somebody potentially doing something nefarious or really bad. The algorithm can highlight a clip in which it detected, for instance, nudity, right? So you're only reviewing clips versus watching a, a very, very hard 30 minutes of, of video. So you can you can do multiple things. Jacob, to, to drill down, as I was thinking about this interview and thinking about some of the things that go on in organizations that I help executives navigate, power dynamics, influence things that some of us may consider bad, I'm curious on your take or what, you know, trust and safety teams would do. So I just wanted to put a couple of these in front of you. Let's do it. You know, the first is is the outsized impact of, of top influencers. So if we think about this in organizations, right, certain people have more power, they are listened to more, certain people follow them, they therefore have clout, their ideas may have more dominance. And then we see this clearly in the social media world where a an influencer has followers, they will say one thing, it ripples through. Yeah, They may not be doing anything bad or defined as bad in, in kind of what you were describing in the triangle there, but they clearly have all the power and that can drown out voices, decisions, and the algorithms tend to feed this. Is there a way one manages around it? Like if you're at the bottom and you have no power and you have no influence... Yeah, I mean, this is a very tricky space and I don't think anybody has fully cracked it. I feel like there's a couple of good approaches that mm -hmm. just in safety teams deploy or more broadly the product and platforms deploy that increase the diversity of user opinions. Let's just brainstorm off the cuff here. The first thing that comes to mind is we're, you know, we're inherently as humans, we're also flawed in that sense. Maybe it's not a flaw, it's just the way things are that we want to hear opinions that align with how we're viewing the world, right? Which is which is why like, social media overall has this bubble problem because we we tend to not follow people who, who, who say things that aggravate us or, or not agree with our worldview. So we create that bubble and we create that bubble in the real world too by hanging out with people that we feel good about hanging out with, who, who share our beliefs and our view. We're not 
purposely seeking to hang out with people who berate us or berate our worldview. And that, again, is transferred into, into the online world. I think two things come to mind. One is, I think TikTok is fairly, I, I got to give credit where it's due. TikTok is fairly good at sparsing and interjecting different type of content. So you, your majority of your content will be, quote unquote, from your bubble, things that you enjoy. But from time to time, it will also viral something or, or give voice to something that is, is from the opposite. Mm -hmm. And that's why people flock to TikTok and like the virality aspect. I'm thinking about the creators as well, mm -hmm. because they can build a quick following base because the, the mechanisms are different. It's not a steady, slow, I got to build my demographic and my follower base like it's happening in the um, older platforms than TikTok. But I think they, they cracked it a little bit better there. And secondly, I, I'm thinking about X, but it was introduced, it, it was called Birdwatch under, under when Twitter was there. It's basically giving the community the ability to counter the claim and provide community notes underneath a particular claim on, on X. I don't know if you use X, but if somebody says something, even with like 100 million followers... And if it's not true or there's additional facts which have been bypassed by the person or, 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 you know, not mentioned, the community notes will be very prominently visible under that particular piece of content saying, that's actually not true. Here's exactly what happened. So it's like a fact check by crowdsourcing, mm -hmm. which I think is great. And, and that it quickly debunks and provides additional context on something that a loud voice would, would then easily be able to sway their following. So thinking of this in an organizational context. In an organization, I think it, it has to come from whoever is organizing whatever kind of a debate or business planning or whatever the context that we're, that we're currently under. Recognize that somebody has cloud, loud voice, is an, is an extrovert, but there are other smart people in the room. Like the power of diversity in, in a business yeah. organization, the not so loud voices tend to be drawn out. But there's ways to do that. Like if I'm thinking about the brainstorming sessions that I do with, with the teams that I've been managing is I make sure that I design them in a way that there's, they don't start with a debate. They start with heads down work and writing your ideas down, everybody by themselves yeah. for a sufficient amount of time. And, and then everybody's kind of forced to present their point of view. And then we debate and then we discuss, but then you have everything on the table. You empowered everybody to do it, regardless if they were a very loud and, and great talent or somebody that typically would not take uh, the stage and, and present their ideas, right? There's an element of making sure that you're allowing people to speak by having the right processes and having a recognition from the, from the senior leaders that they shouldn't be biased and they should really honor the diversity of the people that they brought uh, to the organization by giving them uh, the, the voice. I'm thinking about the meeting and um, as well. If I'm running a meeting and we're, we're brainstorming and soliciting input, just making sure that you ask everybody and you start with typically the people who wouldn't speak uh, as the first ones. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. It is definitely a best practice. And it gets me think of the human interventions, how we structure things, because I think most of us are not even aware that people are speaking yeah. more than others. And that would be a great visualizer, yeah. but also it's a double-edged sword, right? Like you also would want, wouldn't want to penalize somebody and then they will shut up completely in the next interactions just because they tended to speak, I don't know, 25% of the time. Yeah. You've been listening to 97% Effective with your host, executive coach, Michael Winderoff. If this interview is making you think, make sure to share it with a friend. Now, back to our interview. Another question here, kind of drilling down, Jacob, particularly in organizations 
where things are not transparent. So people can be having side conversations, spreading misinformation. This also goes on, right? Bad actors feeding that. It can spread around. If they get it to an influencer, we see how that gets sent around. It's a little bit of a twist on what we talked about before. Ways here that we can prevent bad actors at the beginning from sowing you know, misinformation. And that one is, I'm thinking of... I'm thinking of how trust and safety deals with this. I think the best thing that comes to my mind is typically over time, the platforms develop mechanisms of basically also coming from the real world. Like I'm thinking uh, a soccer slash football game where you have yellow cards and the second yellow card is a red card and, and you're off the field. So cards or, or penalties that you accumulate on your account for violation of the community guidelines or the triangle top policies that, that you went against, they can f- temporarily limit your abilities to, say, be featured on like the front page of TikTok, of the For You feed, as it's, as it's known, if for a period of time, if the infractions that you did are not egregious. But if you cross a certain level and or you cross a certain amount, the penalty can be your account is removed or the penalty can be we're actually going to block your IP and your device identification, uh, um, uh, which is which is unique to your phone, for instance. So we will also prohibit you from creating accounts in the future if you've completely violated the, the, the community guidelines by either a super egregious uh, violation of the policy, which could be a one-strike policy, or you will get multiple strikes that cumulatively will will be used to to remove your account. And now that's how platforms deal with this. And that catches it early, right? Right now it's pretty much the de facto standard. In real world, I mean, HR policies work quite the same way, right? Like if you have an HR policy violation, you get a warning, a verbal warning that maybe doesn't make it into your performance report. Second time you do something, you're going to have a written warning and and a penalty on your rating. And the third time you're out, you're going to be released from your duties. I think it's going to be different in, in cases where you're you're potentially toxic, but not you're not infringing on any of the yeah, code of conduct or code of employment types of rules. Yeah, that's where it feels like it gets very tricky. Politics and bending the truth. Where does that cross the line? It's hard. And I, I mean, I've, de- I've dealt through my career with very toxic people too. And sometimes, it, it's, sometimes it's about taking a stance and calling it out and calling it out to people. In terms of stealing work, whenever you do something, communicate about it, yeah. right? Like own the communication, write about it, talk about it. And so you're putting boundaries already from the get-go for from others not stepping on you or taking credit for, for, for your work. Those are some other things yeah. that I've personally used as well to deal with people like that. Yeah. And I know that they can't they say because I can I can easily point to an artifact that this was my team's scope and my team's deliverables. Yeah, and it, and it very much feels there the best defense could be a good offense and also the, yep. the, the power of strong relationships, high trust relationships that you have, those people who may be in the rooms that you're not who are calling that out if, yes. you, if you can't be there. And really being approaching things, I, I'm generally giving people the benefit of the doubt mm. and building very positive relationships, but I've been I've learned by being burned and I've I've kind of pulled that element of my personal character and personal approach to life 
I first allow people to present themselves to me when, when, when I meet them. And then I decide if I can fully trust them or they're somebody that I have to put in the, I'm going to keep you close, yeah. very close, because I, I don't know if, if you will be somebody that maybe isn't playing fairly. Yeah. Well, what about here, you know, master communicators, and I think this is anyone of, uh, I'm going to call it kind of uh, my generation here who gets frustrated that, that everything's a soundbite, that yeah. we are highly visual, right? These are parts of human behavior. And so those people who can really pack things in crisply, parsing over details and so forth, being very declarative, or even enraging, right? Things that will travel and, and become viral. And so that puts a high premium on creating that image and, and communication. Thoughts here? To a degree, maybe it's a TikTok solution, but to a degree, it's also, you know, it frustrates, you said your generation. I feel like I'm a Xennial, so I'm somewhere in between a millennial and, a, and an Xer, uh, being born in the 1980. Grew up without the internet, but then internet became part of my life. I'm also frustrated by it. I, I keep anybody that I coach, anybody that I mentor or works for me, I make sure that the soft skill of communicating clearly and, and getting rid of the unnecessary details and just sticking to the, the top things that you want to communicate. Some people refer to this as the tiktoization of the discourse. To a degree, it's, it's also about us or our generation just like acknowledging that a, a change is upon us. Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty sure we the same debates have been had when other forms of media have, have appeared. Like nobody's going to read books right now. Uh, nobody's going to read newspaper. Everybody will be watching television. I think it's just a fact of life. Like things change and things evolve. And we need to evolve with them. But also don't forget about the good stuff that what we've learned from the previous era and make it work in the new era. Yeah. Yeah. So basically you're telling me, Jacob, yeah. Get get with the times, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> but bring your relevant expertise and from, learn from, from what it. works and, and make it make it work now in a in a different environment. Yeah. And I, I think the fundamentals of clarity of communication are still there. Yeah. The form factor and the duration in which you have to get people hooked on, on what you're trying to say is significantly has shortened. Yeah, very much so. So I want to bring us here back to your career yeah. and ask a few lightning round questions here at the end. But before I do that, was there anything you wanted to add? I know we went pretty deep there, but you feel like that um, we maybe missed on the trust and safety dimension. I think we've covered it fairly well. Thank you for the question. Okay. On the career front, and, and again, as I alluded to, you are from Poland, you're global, you are now been in Silicon Valley and worked for American and Chinese companies. You made a comment in, in a previous interview I heard about this, this need, and I think it's a balance that we're all going through, of adapting to the, the culture that is there, whether that's the organizational culture, but also thinking about how you shape it. And so we're always kind of towing that line. I think of us as a little bit as chameleons. Some people think we have yeah. an absolute self, but I think of us as chameleons. And advice or perspectives here, how you kind of manage, tow that line. You know, it's adapt without selling your soul, but also you got to adapt enough if you want to influence and kind of redefine the rules. Any thoughts that you want to share on that? I, I liked what you said before and thought you might have additional thinking on that. Yeah, my thoughts on, on the subject of adaptability. I mean, the 
the, the, the ones that adapt survive, right? It's, it's Charles Darwin and it's, it's the history of evolution on this planet. By the way, there's a great show on Netflix narrated by Morgan Freeman that just popped out yesterday that I binged watch with my, with my kids uh, that talks about that and the five big extinction events that mm. happened throughout the history of our planet that are well documented. I think that adaptability is critical and I think I'd really like that without selling your soul so you have to know your personal values. To me, the big thing is when you're going to a particular place, you really have to spend time on the due diligence on how this is going to work with my personal values and what's important for me. Is this an environment in which I will have to compromise significant amount of what is important for me? And sometimes it's really hard to probe, but you have to probe the culture element. As, as When you're interviewing for, for a particular position, you're technically doing the interviewing yourself. And I, I strongly advocate. I had interviews where I spent majority of the time asking questions, and even though I was applying. And you probe it, and then you, you really, really try to... My favorite question is, describe to me the, the best, the worst, and the, the most ugly about uh, what you feel like working is for, for the company. And most people will actually just give you quite, quite the details. They will, they will trim it down. They will, they will keep it uh, uh, you know, on the down low. But you can, you can judge quite a lot of, about what they say uh, to a question that's posed like that. And uh, you have a certain influence, specifically on leadership positions. You have certain influence of how you will run your organizations, how you will interact with other organizations. But if there are big, obvious red flags, I've I've learned and I've seen that sometimes it's just not worth it. Or you you know you may also choose to just go through it and and try to influence it. But if you're not seeing it working out, the culture starts at the very top. And if you're, you're not seeing uh, there's, there's, a, there's a level of change that I will be able to influence on, I mean, yeah, like, why would you fight that? Just accept it. And again, there's no bad thing of just saying that that won't work for me in the long run. I'm going to start looking for a different opportunity. Mm. I'm I'm curious with TikTok. There's clearly views out there that you know it is controlled and heavily influenced, monitored by the Chinese government. As you were thinking of going over there, not not so much your personal process, but how is that viewed in yeah. Silicon Valley these days of working for Chinese companies? Or did you get much backlash or commentary from from your peers? I did. I was joining them in 2020, where they were still relatively small in terms of international staff. Three, three weeks within joining, this was the President Trump's administration that fired two executive orders against TikTok, uh, basically telling them to sell themselves or shut down, at least the American part of their business. So it was risky. I knew that it was going to be risky. TikTok has this big discussion right now with the U.S., with the current administration, with the U.S. government about creating a sustainable way of moving forward. You know, my point of view, having been there, that level of independence and the level of uh, oversight over content and, and users and separation of duties has been radically clear from, from the get-go. Even though we've worked with our Chinese colleagues that, that have created that product, can I speak to all of the intricacies of accesses and access rights? I can't. I, I'll leave it to the companies and the government to discuss between themselves directly. But yeah, I went through a fair share of like, oh my God, what have I done yeah. myself? Yeah, uh, very interesting perspective and reflection. Thank you for for sharing that. Also, your your European side. <laughs> you you've been in the U.S. now for a long time, but I've heard you say you're still very much European. What do you mean by that? Yeah. <laughs> please, Amer my American friends, don't hate me for what I'm about to say. Say it, please. I <laughs> hard truths. 
I love this country, which is why we've decided to settle here. We've bought a house and we're raising our children with my wife here. But doesn't mean that everything's perfect, right? Yeah. So I, I will say, like, the entrepreneurship, the, the things that actually is very feels fake for a European at the very beginning, which is the very obvious, like, hey, how are you in, in a store? And where for a European, like, why are you asking me how I'm doing? Just, I, I want to buy these things. That's it. But then it, it kind of grows on you. And you understand that, that, like, it creates a much more positive atmosphere ever, anywhere you go. The stuff that I think is still deeply rooted in my, in my DNA is a difference of approach to how I define success in my life and, and what, what work is for me versus what work isn't for me. The, the first question that you get in, when you meet new people is like, what do you do, right? Like, what's your, what's your work of life? People in Europe will generally tend to ask that, but maybe later, right? They will want to meet you. It's not unheard of that uh, Americans laugh at August being a dead month in Europe, but is it a bad thing that, you know, we, we take like two, three weeks off in, in August when we're, when we're working there? So long story short, I would describe it as, I think we work less and we work, we, we tend to prioritize life and then work is, is a significant part of it, but it's a part of it versus what I feel like in US. And maybe there's an element of Silicon Valley-ness in it as well. Like people work really long hours and really hard. And then they outsource a lot of the stuff that typically you would see as I actually want to live my life. I want to cook for my family or I want to spend time with my family eating dinners or taking them to, to certain events and, and spending time on these events rather than outsourcing and just, you know, buying food and buying uh, uh, driver services uh, and then spending all my time working. I hear my American friends laughing about the Europeans and their approach and, and the lack of competitiveness that they see because of that in the companies as well as uh, more broadly the employees. But I actually think it boils down to how we define success. Yeah. To me, success is much more broader than just I made a ton of money, but kids are out of the house and like I feel like this just was such a blur uh, for me. Fundamental question. I'm also hearing my wife talk to me, <laughs> who is from Spain. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and that leads me to my, my final question here, which is you've been working hard. You have been in the last 18 years, if I did the math correctly, nonstop in very driven companies from P&G, Google, ByteDance, to Meta, and and you've have some time off right now, and I'm curious here in this pause, which you have not had before. I don't think yeah. you take entire August off as much as you say that. What have you done during this time that has given you some clarity, or you feel like has been effective in in thinking about where you are in your journey? Uh, great question, thank you. I I actually have taken some longer periods of not maybe months, but but week multiple weeks off. Uh, when we got married with my wife, we backpacked through South America for close to a month. Uh, so I, I, I walk my talk, okay, as a European. But I've never taken more than that. Like it, it was, there was always something to do and I was checking in after uh, a certain period of time. This is the first time that I'm enjoying like a proper break after, after, the, the, after my meta experience. And I, I kind of lean, lean into it. I'm laughing to my wife that this is, I'm going through a proper controlled uh, midlife, uh, maybe not crisis, but a moment. And she's like, fine with that. We're, we're a dual working couple. So she's actually spending time right now that I could step in into a lot of household duties to actually do her CPA exams, which you know are, are quite robust in terms of preparation time needed. So it's really sort of a balance right now. And I'm kind of, I went into the rabbit hole of discovering 
how do I want the 40 years or the second part of my life to look like? Uh, what do I want to do professionally? But also, what do I want to do personally? What, what, how, like rediscovering some of my hobbies, reading a lot about what are the latest and greatest research in terms of sleep patterns, habits, eating habits. Um, I replaced all my cookware and get, got rid of Teflon. And right now I have stainless steel after reading about PFAS and and, and the forever chemicals that, that, that they produce and things of that nature. So I'm spending a lot of time on professional, personal growth and also thinking about journaling and thinking about what drives me and where I want to step next. Um, I think it will be definitely around the areas of user uh, mission-driven uh, impact. Um, it could be trust and safety. It could be broader than trust and safety. It could be mental health uh, services. My personal Area is I, I'm all about personal productivity. I co-developed a training with my colleagues in PNG called Workload Management for Knowledge Workers. It was very, very popular in PNG, and maybe I'm going to spend some time tinkering with this and doing something for for the 2023 knowledge worker, which is even more overloaded with incoming requests for their time. So my head is going there on, on spending some time there before I commence to a full full-time career back. Fascinating and fantastic conversation. It went in multiple directions here, but extremely excited to to follow and, and hear what you are going into next. Lots of different directions, but there is clearly a, a central thread that runs through what you do and what you will eventually continue to do. So Jacob, I want to thank you for your time joining me on 97% Effective. How do people best reach you? Yeah, thanks. I appreciated the invite as well as enjoy the conversations very much. Thanks, Michael. Best reach me. Again, I've talked about LinkedIn. I think from a professional reach out and network management is, is quite the tool. So feel free to find me on LinkedIn. And maybe in the future, there will be a, a site where you can you can see what I'm up to in terms of the personal productivity or other things that interest me. But LinkedIn is the best one. Well, excited to see that. Thank you. Thanks for listening to 97% Effective, where we skip happy talk and help you break through and ascend one hard truth at a time. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, you can get free resources, including the first chapters of Michael's book, Get Promoted, on his website, www.changwinderoth.com. That's www.changwenderoth.com. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.